Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, one of my favorite mentors and preachers is a man named Sinclair Ferguson. I heard him this week uh, tell a story about how he was speaking at a conference once in the American South in Mississippi somewhere. And uh, there were multiple speakers at this conference. And two of the speakers were um, pastors from Eastern Europe. And, and these men had grown up sort of uh, under Soviet rule during the Cold War. And they were ministering at the time sort of in the wake of the fall of the Iron Curtain and the end of the Soviet Union. And... Um, Ferguson and these two men and a couple of other of the hosts of the conference before the conference was started walked into a grocery store just running a couple of errands before the conference began and Ferguson and the other guys just walked in and didn't think a word a word of it and then and they noticed these two Eastern European brothers weren't with them and so they turned around and they saw that these two men had just stopped dead in their tracks when they walked into the grocery store and they had just this dumbfounded look on their face with their jaws down here like and so they walked back to the two Eastern European men and Sinclair Ferguson asked them, hey, what's going on, guys? And they're like, does the government own this grocery store? Does the government own this grocery store? And they're like, no. And then the two men just broke down and began to weep. And they said, the privilege of this country is incredible. Now, Ferguson told that story to remind us really of what a privilege it is to live in a place like the United States of America as citizens, as people who experience, by and large, much more freedom than those in most of the other parts of the world. He also told that story to apply it to people who believe in Jesus. And I tell that story to apply it to you and to me. And here's how I want to apply it. Just like Americans tend to forget the privilege we live in, so Christians as well live way below the level of our privileges. Do you know that? Christians live way below the level of our privileges. Um, somehow the privileges of the gospel don't penetrate. They don't sink deep into our lives in the way they should. Listen, we, we tend to miss just the overwhelming, pervading sense of Scripture that the gospel is the greatest news you could ever possibly hear. We are privileged beyond measure to have this Savior and to believe this gospel. 
And as we've been going through Romans, I hope, I really hope that the Holy Spirit has been stirring that in you. I hope that you're more and more able to see that the gospel's the greatest thing you could ever possibly hear. And in fact, if you hear the message of the gospel, if you hear the message of the gospel and you don't think that's the best news I've ever heard, that's a sure sign that you haven't properly understood it. If you hear the gospel and you don't rejoice as if this is the greatest news ever, you don't yet really get it. You're living below the privileges that are yours as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans. And as we transition into Romans 5, we see him begin to elaborate on it in amazing ways. This is a major turning point in Romans, beginning in chapter 5 and all the way through chapter 8. We see Paul begin to explain how the good news of the righteousness of God given to us freely in Jesus, how the gospel changes our lives, how the gospel makes a difference in your and in my day-to-day existence. So we're about to dive in, but in case uh, you've missed the prior weeks or just for a recap, let me summarize real quick Romans 1 through 4. The message of the gospel itself, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And Paul tells us that we need to hear this message because all of us fall short of the glory of God. We all rebel against God. We all deny God. We all turn away from God. Irreligious people do that. And religious people do that. Immoral people do that. And really good upstanding moral citizens, the pillars of our community, they do that as well. Irreligious people do it by suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Religious people and moral people tend to do it by seeking to earn God's approval through their own moral or religious efforts. So all of us sin. All of us fall short of God's glory. And the Bible says that that separates us from God. That merits and deserves God's judgment. But God has answered human rebellion by offering us a righteousness that's not ours. He offers us a right standing before him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's told us that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's told us that we, if we believe that good news, are counted as if we had never sinned. We're counted as righteous before God and that there's nothing we can do to change that new status we've been given. If we transfer our trust... If we transfer our trust from self to Jesus, our lives are changed. Our identity is secured. We are justified, Paul has said. Last week I said that being a Christian is like marrying a billionaire, although someone much richer than a billionaire, so that everything the billionaire has becomes yours. You, in fact, are now a billionaire. A Christian's like someone who's married to Jesus. Everything that Jesus possesses, everything that Jesus has earned through his perfect life becomes yours as well for free. For free. Now, that's a privileged thing. It's a privileged thing. That's an amazing piece of news. And so what Paul begins to do here is lay out for us some of the privileges of being one who believes the gospel. And let me tell you, these are, uh, as every chapter in Romans, amazing, incredible, wonderful truths. Paul gives us gospel privileges in these verses. I'm going to walk you through three of them real quick. 
And then I'm going to walk you through three questions that Paul anticipates when we don't believe that those privileges are really ours. So let's jump in, okay? A couple of minutes together. First, I want to show you gospel privileges. Look in verse 1 and verse 2. You'll see them there. Three incredible privileges of the gospel. As I was reading through this this week, I thought about when I was a child, uh, every year at Christmas, my mom's best friend growing up, uh, as a woman named Maria Solano, a wonderful woman, would celebrate Christmas with our family on Christmas Day. And every year, she would bring into the door on Christmas morning a massive box wrapped in gift wrapping paper with a huge bow on it. And it said to Luke, Andrew, and Robert, my, me and my two brothers. And it was always like the most exciting part of Christmas. And we would open up this massive box and there would be a, a gift in it. And along with the gift, another slightly smaller box wrapped up with a beautiful bow on it. And so the first gift might be for me. And then the second box would be opened. And guess what? There's a third box, slightly smaller, beautifully wrapped with a bow on it, along with the gift. And it was box after box after box, gift after gift after gift. It was a beautiful thing to celebrate. That's what these verses are like. It's like a, a gift within a gift within a gift within a gift. The privileges of the gospel are what Paul lays out for us here. So let me tell you three of them real quick. Look in the text with me. We see the first privilege is that we have peace with God. Look at verse one. Since we've been justified by faith. In other words, since everything I've said in Romans one through four is true, one of the benefits, one of the privileges of that is that we have peace with God. You, if you're a Christian, have peace with God, your maker and your judge, right this very minute. That peace comes through Jesus Christ, through Jesus's death, our sin, which is an offense and an affront to the majesty and the goodness of God. Our sin is done away with. If we connect to Jesus by faith, we are friends with God. We're at peace with God. We no longer have enmity in our relationship with him. You get what that means? That means that your past offenses, your past failures, the past grievances that God had against you, and maybe the grievances that you had against God, those are no longer counted against you. That's unbelievable news. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was a monk. He was already a Christian monk when he heard this message for the first time. And the reason this message was so powerful to him is because he knew that deep down he wasn't friends with God. In fact, people would say, what do you think of God? Don't you love him? And Luther would say, love God. What? Sometimes I hate God. And that's the basic default status of every single one of our hearts before a holy God, because our sin creates brokenness in the relationship. So the privilege of peace with God affects our past. When you are justified, when you connect to Jesus, if you believe the gospel, there's nothing in your past that can break your fellowship with God. There's nothing that you've ever done that can break your fellowship with God. You you don't have to hide or be ashamed of your past because you are counted as sinless. You're counted as righteous. Because God has transferred all of your sin, all of its guilt and all of its power to Jesus. And God has transferred all of Jesus' righteousness and glory to you. So because you have peace with God, God is no longer someone to be feared or avoided. Instead, he's someone to be trusted. He's someone to pursue 
God has made peace with you. Your past is irrevocably changed. The second privilege, he says, you have peace with God. Through him, verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Faith grants you access into the world of grace. That's the idea behind this language. Grace is, it's pictured here like a, like a new home, like a new habitat, our natural new habitat. Imagine it this way. Imagine that one of you uh, gets an audience one-on-one to meet with the president of the United States, whether you like him or don't like him, I don't care. That's a privilege. To be able to meet with the president of the United States, is a, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That's a, that's a rare thing, right? To be remembered for the rest of your life. What this text is saying is that the justified believer doesn't just get an occasional audience with the president. We don't just get to approach not just the president, the, the king. The king of the universe. We don't just get to approach him periodically. We live in his house. We have full access to him. I was reading a biography a number of years ago about John F. Kennedy. And in the biography, there's a chapter that talks about his family life when he was president in the White House. And there's this picture. You've probably seen it. It's a famous picture of Kennedy working at his desk in the Oval Office. But his chair is somewhat pushed back. And underneath his desk... Anybody know this picture? Is JFK Jr. sitting there playing underneath the desk of the Oval Office while his dad works. That is access. That's access into the halls of power. That is privilege. We have the exact same kind of privilege with the ruler of the universe. Access into the world of grace. So we have peace with God. The gospel affects our past. We have access into grace. The gospel affects our presence. Look at the third privilege, verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, that is a really Christian-y phrase. You probably think, that sounds so great, Pastor. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's probably a song somewhere that's played on K-Love right now. But it's hard to, like, what does that mean? I mean, just take five seconds in your head and try and figure out what that means. It took me a while to figure out what that means today. It's like, you know, claws upon claws that we read all the time in the Bible, and we can just pass right over that and feel sweet butterflies in our stomach and then move on. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. One day, your life will be fully illuminated by being with God. That is going to happen. One day, your life will be fully illuminated By being with God, that is our, Paul says, certain bedrock foundational hope. If you have been justified by faith, that is your future. Your future is this. The best day you ever have in this life. The best day you ever have in this life. Your wedding day. The day your children are born. The day the Cowboys finally win the next Super Bowl. That's not a solid hope, by the way. Uh, The best day you ever have in this life will be worse than the worst day you ever have in the next life in God's new world. The best moments we've ever had cannot even begin to compare with God's world that is coming. That's the hope that we have 
when Jesus makes us new, when Jesus justifies us by his grace. Jesus talks about this in John 17. He's praying to his father in the garden and he asks for us. He prays for us. And here's what he says. God, I pray that just as you are in me, father, and just as I am in you, that they, that is that you and me may also be in us. What? Peter, in 2 Peter, puts it like this. We become partakers of the divine nature. Does that mean you become God? No. But it means you're so wound up with everything that God is for you in Jesus that his life shares your life and your life shares his. That's your future. If you're justified, the privilege of rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God affects our future. Our past is affected. We have peace with God. Our present's affected. We have access into grace. Our future's affected. We have hope that is certain, certain and sure. The way we put that here is that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. That is our number one primary commitment. That is the banner we stand under. That is the flag that we're waving. It changes everything about your past, your present, and your future. It's, it's the greatest news you've ever heard. So listen, listen. Are you living up to those privileges? Are you living up to those privileges? And I don't mean that in some sort of moralistic, I've got to earn it way. I mean, are you resting in the joy of all of that means for you? Are you resting in the joy of all of that means for you? Probably not. Probably not. And so Paul knows that about us, which is why he gives us the rest of these verses. In fact, he anticipates questions we have, struggles we face, that cause us to not rejoice in the privileges that are ours in the gospel. Let's look at those, okay? The first question is, how can this be true when I'm suffering? One of the big struggles that all of us from time to time face, and that some of you are facing right now, is this. If all of that stuff you said, Luke, is true, why am I suffering? Or how can I have hope? How can I have that kind of hope when my life stinks? When I'm suffering, when it's hard every day to get out of bed. Look at what Paul says, verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Pause. That does not mean, listen, everyone listen. That does not mean that suffering is good. Your suffering is not good. And if someone tells you in the name of Jesus that your suffering is good, ignore them. They're naive or fools. Your suffering is not good. Suffering should not be. Suffering is not what God intended when he made this world. Paul's not saying that we should rejoice because we suffer. That's a masochistic way of looking at the universe. That's not what Paul means. What Paul means is that we can rejoice even in the middle of suffering because suffering, although it is not good in and of itself, is purposeful. It's purposefully used by God for our good. That's why Paul says suffering produces something. It produces endurance, and then endurance, in turn, produces character, and character produces hope. So a Christian can know that suffering will have beneficial results. So if you're a Christian and you're suffering, you don't need to suffer like a stoic, just facing your suffering with gritted teeth. And you don't need to suffer like a Buddhist, just pretending that it's not really there. No, a Christian, a Christian is able to suffer, but look through the suffering, so to speak, to the certainties 
of God's promises. And then to rest in the knowledge that our troubles ultimately are going to serve to increase our enjoyment and our appreciation of God and of the gospel. The point is, if you face suffering with a clear grasp of justification by faith, with a clear grasp of the gospel, your joy in grace can even deepen in the middle of suffering. Some of you this morning need to hear this because some of you are suffering. Some of you are suffering. One of my privileges as your pastor is to know a little bit about what's happening in a lot of your lives. And I know that some of you are suffering. Some of you undoubtedly are asking, how can God really love me? How can God really be for me when this is happening or when that is happening? And it's natural to ask that question. You need to hear that. And the truth is that your suffering is something that God himself grieves. Do you know that? Your suffering is something that God weeps over. Jesus, when his good buddy Lazarus died, wept. Jesus weeps at the suffering and death that ravages the world that he made and loves. God shares our pain and our hurt and our suffering. Right now, if you're suffering, God shares your pain and your hurts. And God is there. He's with you in your suffering. He's forming you through it and he's shaping you through it and he's honing you into the beautiful person that you will one day be forever through it. He's with you. He's near to you. How can I know that, Luke? Because God suffered. How can I know that, Luke? Because Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ was tormented. Jesus Christ was in agony, but he rose from the dead. How can you know? Because God died to prove that he loves you and that your suffering is not purposeless. Your cancer is evil and terrible, but God will not let it dry up your hope. Your marriage struggles, your family struggles are painful and tragic. Listen, God will not let it dry up your hope. Your depression and your grief and your sense of betrayal. These things are horrible. They're not the way things should be in this world. But God knows exactly, exactly what that is like. He identifies fully with you in suffering. And he will bring you out. He will not let those things dry up your hope. Listen to the great 17th century pastor John Newton, who also wrote Amazing Grace, by the way. Somewhat well-known song. And um, Newton was a great pastor. And uh, there's this famous letter he wrote to this woman. I've used this before. I'm using it again because I couldn't find anything better than this. So he wrote this letter to this sister in the church that had lost her sister to an early death. And, And this is just a profoundly beautiful pastoral letter. And one of the things he writes to her is this. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sins. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. What? Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. When you cannot see your way, be satisfied that he is your leader. When your spirit is overwhelmed within you, he knows your path. He will not leave you to sink. The gospel means you can believe that even in suffering, God is using it to ultimately further your hope. And he is not going to lose hold of you. A second question. First question, how can this be true when I'm suffering? Second question, how can this be true when I'm doubting? How can these things be true? I I struggle to believe this, God. This one really resonates with me, just to be honest with you. Uh, 
as a pastor, sometimes it's hard for me to believe the things I tell you to believe every week. It is. It's hard as a cynical person, as someone who can get jaded, to embrace how good the news of justification really is. It's hard. And it might be hard for you as well. And so Paul addresses that. He says, when you're doubting and struggling, the Lord gives assurance. He gives assurance that his promises are true, that you really do have peace with God, that you really do have access to grace, that you really do have a future of hope. He helps us when we doubt, Paul says. Well, how does he do that? Well, Paul tells us. He gives us an internal subjective assurance, and he gives us an external objective assurance. Look first. He gives internal assurance through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How can you be sure that God loves you? Like right now, right now, how can you be sure that God loves you? The Holy Spirit right now will help you believe it. That's how. What the Spirit does is make you deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves you. That's his role. He makes you deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves you. Notice it says the Spirit is poured into our hearts. It's not leaked into our hearts. It doesn't simmer into our hearts. It is poured lavishly into our hearts. So how can you access that assurance that the Holy Spirit gives? Here's the beauty of being a Christian. How can you access the ministry of the Holy Spirit? You can ask him. You can ask him. Isn't that great? You can ask the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says, it's actually better for you for me to be gone. John 15, John 16. Because when I'm gone, the Spirit will come and continue my ministry among you. He will comfort you. Could you do that maybe when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're doubting? Ask the Holy Spirit to give you assurance. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you believe. The Holy Spirit is like what God did for Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, he walked with them in the cool of the day. The Holy Spirit walks with you in the heat of the day now. So that's the internal assurance. The external assurance for those who struggle with doubt is what Paul says next. He says, basically, something has happened in history that proves that God loves you and that proves that his promises are true. What is it? While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How can you know when you're jaded and cynical, when you're doubting and wondering, how can you know that you have peace with God and access to grace and hope for the future? You can know because Jesus objectively in history died on a Roman cross for his enemies. People don't do that. People don't do that. Here's the calculus here. The more the gift costs the giver and the more undeserving the recipient is, the greater the love. The more the gift costs the giver, the more undeserving the recipient, that plus that equals great, great love. And we can understand and resonate with that. People die for good causes. That happens all the time. You don't even have to be a Christian to die for a good cause. It probably happens every day. And it also happens, some of our best stories are this, is that people die for someone they love. A Tale of Two Cities is like that. Friday Night Lights, Tim Riggins went to jail 
all of you girls that have seen Friday Night Lights are now paying attention. Yeah, I know. He went to jail for his brother because he loved his brother. All kinds of stories are about that. People dying for those who deserve to live a full life. But the gospel's not any of that. The gospel is that the one with everything to live for died for the one who rejected him. Jesus died for his enemies, not his friends. Jesus died for people that hated him. He died for the people that killed him, not for those who loved him and deserved it. What does that mean? Just very practically. (laughs) Some of you are struggling to believe this morning that God really loves you. You might not be able to articulate that, but you're struggling. And the reason you can know you're struggling is because you keep dealing with the same junk in your life. You're kind of just null and dumb to come into church in the mornings. You're just kind of walking through life bit by bit, piece by piece. You doubt that God really loves you. And if that's true for you, if this just doesn't move you, if, if it's just old news, or maybe if your conscience is accusing you, if your conscience is saying, how could God love you? How could God love you after what you did this week? How could God love you after that thought you just had about that person? How could God love you after those words that you said, even though they were to yourself? How can God love you when you keep having these thoughts invade your mind, even though you know you're evil? God doesn't love you. God doesn't love people who do that. Listen, the privilege of the gospel means that you don't have to try to answer your conscience with reference to your performance. In other words, you don't say, yeah, I know. Ah, I know I did that, but I had a bad day, okay? Ah, I know I did that, but I was under pressure. No, the gospel means when your conscience accuses you, you can say, even if I hadn't done that, even if I hadn't done that, that wouldn't make me any more acceptable before God than because I have done that. And I did do that thing, but Jesus died for me. And Jesus' blood can cover a thousand worlds with a hundred billion people each who have done a thousand times worse than what I just did. And I know that because Jesus died for his enemies. It really happens. So the promises must be true. When you're suffering, God assures you. When you're doubting or when you're just numb, God assures you. Last question. How can this be true forever? (laughs) How can this be? Okay, Luke. That sounds awesome for right now. I'm in church right now. That's supposed to sound awesome. But how can this be true always? That's what 9, 10, and 11 are about. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And this is a super strong argument he's making. Basically, it's a classic argument of greater to the lesser. Stick with me. We're almost done. Um, The thrust is this. Paul's saying, hey, listen, if God loved you when you were enemies, how much more is he going to love you now when he's your friend? Or if God has already done the really, really difficult thing, which is saving you when you were his enemy, can't we trust him to do the comparatively simple thing of completing the task that he started, saving us from his final wrath, is how Paul puts it. If God reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus when we were against him, much more will he save his people from his final wrath. God will complete what he started. Paul's saying the gospel is not just true for you now. If you're connected to Jesus, it's always true for you, forever, no matter what. Even when you stand before the judgment seat of God, God's not going to leave you out in the cold if he gave you Jesus. Do you hear me? God's not going to leave you in the cold if he gave you Jesus 
Some of you think that if you aren't careful, (laughs) if you aren't careful, God's going to cast you out. You think God is like your fifth grade teacher. No offense to you fifth grade teachers. Love you. Some of you think God's like your fifth grade teacher. She's clipped you down. And maybe she's clipped you down again. Uh Uh-oh. One more clip down, you're expelled. One more clip down, you're a goner. That's not true. God, God is not going to change his mind about you. God is not going to get tired of you. He's not going to say to you, that's it. You're out. That one was the final straw, Luke. He's not going to do it. How can you know? Because he gave you Jesus. Jesus was expelled. Jesus was expelled for you. (laughs) Jesus stood in your place. You have peace with God now. Real peace. God's unchangingly your friend. If God gave you Jesus, he's going to finish what he started. So when you fight ongoing sin patterns in your life, when, when you struggle with the same stuff, rest in this and then fight. When you're beset with temptation, rest in this and fight. If God is for you, who's going to be against you? His mercy is more. Can your suffering or your hurt defeat or distort the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? No. Can your doubt or unbelief cramp the mercy of God? No. No. Can your mistakes, your ongoing failures, the fact that you're at best a screw up, can that damage the mercy of God for you? No. Because Christ has died. Because Christ is risen and he's going to come back. Your hope is certain. Let's pray.